Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin on this Martin Luther King Day with the rancor being expressed by African-American leaders like MLK's son and Congressman Clyburn directed at Democratic Senator Sinema for her stance on the filibuster and speak with Anthea Butler, the Geraldine R. Siegel Professor in American Social Thought and Chair of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Butler's latest book is White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America, and we will discuss whether Manchin and Cinema's obstruction of voting rights reform make them throwbacks to the Dixiecrats who blocked civil rights or servants of their rich and powerful donors and corporate backers. Then, with the latest report from Oxfam released to coincide with the Davos Economic Forum, we will speak with Sam Pizzagatti, a veteran labor journalist, a fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, and an editor at the online newsletter inequality.org. His books include The Rich Don't Always Win, The Forgotten Triumph Over Plutocracy that Created the American Middle Class, and most recently, The Case for a Maximum Wage. And we will discuss the Oxfam report's finding that the world's 10 richest men have more than doubled their collective wealth during the pandemic when 160 million more around the world have been pushed into poverty. Then finally, we'll look into the ongoing undersea volcanic explosions near the main island of Tonga and speak with Dr. Alan Robock, a distinguished professor in climatology in the Department of Environmental Sciences at Rutgers University, who was the lead author of the latest report from the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. His research interests include nuclear weapons, climate intervention, geoengineering, and the effects of volcanic eruptions on climate and we will discuss how volcanic eruptions can cause temporary global cooling. And before we begin today's program, I'd like to thank a growing number of listeners who have become subscribers to Background Briefing, making monthly donations to our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us on this Martin Luther King Day is Anthea Butler, the Geraldine R. Siegel Professor in American Social Thought and Chair of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Butler's latest book is White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anthea Butler. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And without getting into the morality of Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema, there has been quite a lot of rancor expressed by some African-American leaders like Congressman Clyburn and Martin Luther King Jr.'s son and others like Hillary Clinton, directed at mostly at Senator Cinema. But I'll just quote from Hillary Clinton's tweet. Martin Luther King Jr. said, I had hoped that the white moderate world would understand that law and order exist for the purpose of establishing justice and that when they fail in this purpose, they become the dangerously structured dam that blocks the flow of social progress. So, And Martin Luther King Jr.'s son tweeted that very same statement. So what are they getting at, do you think? 
Well, I think what they're trying to get at is something that, you know, I'm going to have to criticize Hillary Clinton for, believe it or not. And that is, you know, law and order exists to do justice. But law and order has existed in America for the past 400 years in order to put and squash down black people. So, you know, I have to say that while I can appreciate why Hillary Clinton might think that was a good quote of Martin Luther King's to use, she could come underneath that same scrutiny for her husband's um, presidency and the whole role of super predators and all of that and the ways in which they talked about black and mass incarceration. So, you know, I think that to stick with what you're asking me here, I think that Kristen Cinema, Senator Cinema, is very disingenuous. She tweeted out earlier this afternoon, today we remember the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I said, your hypocrisy knows no bounds. She is, you know, basically a corporate shill. The only reason that seems to make sense that she is doing what she's doing to block the passage of voting rights is to please her donors. And I would say the same thing about Senator Manchin. And so when you have two people in your party who are like this, and you have a president who basically has not, you know, deigned to do anything about this until a year later in his presidency when it's almost too late and everything has been gerrymandered to hell. I have to ask the question, what's going on in Washington with Democrats and are they asleep at the wheel? So the idea expressed by Martin Luther King Jr.'s son that somehow cinema and mansion are throwbacks to the Dixiecrats. Do you think that that's a little misplaced? Because aren't they simply just servants of the rich and powerful donors and corporate backers? Absolutely. And I think that to call them to make to throw them back to Jim Crow is not to realize what is really happening. These are the, you know, the nice neoliberals that I like to tell you about that basically are like, well, you know, if we're getting paid by somebody, we need to serve the people we're getting paid for. So neither one of them, neither Manchin nor Cinema, are there to serve the people who elected them and put them into office. They are there to serve corporate interests. And corporate interests are the ones and, you know, money donors, of course, who are keeping this, you know, at bay. And I think that it would behoove people like Martin Luther King's junior son to realize that this is the game that is happening today. You can't read what is happening today based on what was happening during his father's time. This is a very different opposition to voting rights and civil rights, and it is a moneyed opposition as opposed to a Dixiecrat opposition. So given how vulnerable Senator Warnock's seat is down there in Georgia, and Recently, Biden went down there and made a pretty powerful speech, which, frankly, I wish he would have made just after January the 6th and really gone after Trump early on before the big lie that Trump's been foisting has metastasized into the fact that 80% of Republicans believe that Trump is the legitimate president and that Biden is illegitimate. So given that he was down there in Atlanta visiting Martin Luther King's grave in, in John Lewis's district... What's your sense then of why there was this report? Now, maybe the reports were exaggerated of local activists and leaders not being happy with Biden being there. And there was much made about Stacey Abrams not being there to meet with him. Uh, and of course, she denied that there was a problem between the two of them. But where, where is that coming from? Is that real or not? Oh, it's real. It's very real. It's real because of the disgust that uh, people had who really worked very hard in the election in 2020 
to put President Biden into office. And the fact that he has ignored this situation for a year, chasing after infrastructure and everything else, when voting is the foundation of our democracy, that is, you know, a, a, a problem. And I don't think that it's anybody should be mad at any of those activists who work very hard to make sure that people were registered to fight against gerrymandering and things in the states and to not show up for a president who basically hasn't done anything until now and is looking for a photo op. I mean, I, I was really just disappointed and disgusted, quite frankly, with that whole thing down in Atlanta. And I think what we also have to take into account is that Biden does not have a handle on things. I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, I know I sound, this is going to scare a lot of people, but I think that Democrats need to be very worried about November 2022, because it looks like it could be lost in the House, maybe in the Senate, definitely, and in the House, possibly. Because they have slept on everything that they needed to do about voting rights. So, I, you know, as I've said before, I think that Biden has suffered from a kind of nostalgia for the 1970s when he thought that Republicans and Democrats could work together. This is not where we are now. And I wish that he would disabuse himself of this fantasy and get on with being the president instead of allowing you know, Senator Manchin to have the keys to the White House. And again, I'm speaking with Anthea Butler, who's the Geraldine R. Siegel Professor of American Social Thought and Chair of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Butler's latest book is White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. So do you think it's indifference on Biden's part or just that his priorities were all wrong? I, I was mentioning the speech that he made in last week down in Atlanta attacking Trump and the speech he made the previous day, attacking Trump's big lie and this massive voter suppression underway with the Republicans. I thought he should have made that speech right away, early on, and particularly after January the 6th, when, when Trump was vulnerable. You had people like Mitch McConnell calling for his head, and yet the Democrats dropped the ball. Wasn't that the moment to really go after voting rights? Because January the 6th insurrection was an attack on voting. That's what it was in a fundamental sense. Yes, that is absolutely correct. And I agree with you. I think that he wasted time. He, They did not press the issue. They should have put them up against the wall and made them stand up and stand up for voting rights because they had them. They had them then because they were all scared that they would be implicated. And because they did not press through, because Biden, you know, went in and got into office and didn't do anything and didn't make a very strong speech about this as soon as he could have after being inaugurated, this all went away. And so the frustration has built. And meanwhile, the time for Republicans to, um, you know, circle the wagons and get everything done in the states that they wanted to happen. And so now we're faced with a dire situation that, quite frankly, I don't know that we get out of. Well, the Quinnipiac poll taken down in Georgia, and again, I'm mentioning the fact that Raphael Warnock's barely got elected, and he's going to be really having a tough time to get reelected. And that'll, if he's not, that's the end of the Democratic majority in the Senate because of the massive voter suppression going on in the state of Georgia. This Quinnipiac poll. Uh, released last week, finds that the president's approval rating amongst African-American voters dropped from 78% to 57% since the previous poll was taken in April of 2021. That's got to be alarming for the White House. It should be. And I think it's going to drop more. 
And I don't think that they can count on people showing up to vote. It's like I've said before. I mean, I think that what people should understand is the expectation that Black people should wait in line for 10 and 12 hours in order to vote for a president that has not cared about their specific you know, needs and, and things that need to get done for the African-American community specifically, but for voting rights in general, I, I don't think that he can count on us. I really don't. And so you know, while people have been very critical of me saying this and saying, oh, well, you're telling people not to vote, I'm like, no, I'm not saying that. I'm telling people that even if they wait in line for 10 to 12 hours because everything has been gerrymandered to hell, their vote may not count. And that's because of this president's lack of foresight and lack of initiative in dealing with something that is a profound issue that is fundamental to our dem- democracy in, in a reasonable, timely manner. But all this is happening because of Trump and the Republicans. Trump has Absolutely. been breaking all the norms. Mm-hmm. This is a whole new ball game now where the Republicans are essentially working for a one-party state. They no longer believe in democracy. They would no. rather cheat than compete. So exactly. shouldn't people vote simply to stop the destruction of American democracy? You can't let Trump and the GOP win because they're cheating. I know. but So, here's, so here's what do you do? So, so what you do is you get leaders who are not asleep at the wheel. I mean, to, to leave this all to the people in order to just go out and vote, right? When, when they're going to stop every vote that they can is not going to fix the issue. This is what I'm trying to make clear to people. It's like, it's not the simple fact that you go in and do your vote. They are figuring out how to try to steal your vote at every turn. So you need something more than just the fact that people go out to vote in droves to help counteract this. That means that lawmakers have to govern. And if they're not governing and they're not doing it fast enough and they're not knocking heads in like LBJ did to get the Voting Rights Act passed in 64, you know, then then what do we have here? I mean, honestly, let let me say the thing that will shock all of your Democratic listeners. Everybody can get mad about Trump, but Trump gave his people what they wanted. He may have lied to them but he's given their people a sense to rally around and they have been very shrewd in order to upend what the norms have been. That is the whole point. The Democrats are still running as though there are norms. There aren't norms. They don't have enough sense to know that everything is on fire right now and that they, the, the Republicans have thrown norms out of the window and that they need to move just as fast to replace or shore up the norms that ensure American democracy. So, what do you expect on Tuesday then with the showdown in the Senate where Schumer's going to do whatever he's going to do about uh, well, this situation, you know, because Set Mansion Cinema won't touch the filibuster. And they, of course, Cinema's lying when she talks about, goes to the floor and talks about, you know, we can't do away with the filibuster for absolutely specious reasons. She makes absolutely no sense in her argument. But they're not even trying to get rid of the filibuster. They're just trying to work around it for voting rights. So. Yeah. And they won't they won't pull the they won't pull the lever on the biggest thing they probably could do. But I think that, you know, what tomorrow does is basically give them a show and, and give them a way to say, see, these people don't want voting rights. But then what do they do? This is the question I have. Is that how will they use this this vote? How will they use this particular moment to rally people, to push the president to do things that he can do with executive orders? How can they do it? It may be too late. 
And, and that's the part that I think is the, the hard part that I am having a huge problem with to realize that this whole year has been wasted. And, and that, you know, not only has it been wasted, but we're seeing the end of a democratic process. I mean, I don't like thinking about as a historian going back to Jim Crow and polling tax and all the rest of this stuff. But by golly, this is where we are. And the fact that our president nor our Senate, or, you know, the leader of the House and the Senate have figured this out yet and, and are just now waking up to the fact that everything is on fire makes me really worried for our democracy. But it sounds like, Anthea, though, that obviously we need better leaders on the yeah. Democratic side. But yeah, we we're going to end up with worse leaders on the Republican side. And in yes, fact, neo-fascist, kleptocratic, mentally ill, disgraceful, horrible man. You'd have to scour this country to find a human being <laughs> worse than Donald Trump. He's going to well. end up as the next president. And at the end That's of this year, you're going to have, you know, Jim Jordan and, mm -hmm. and, and McCarthy having kangaroo trials and show yep. trials and Benghazi's and impeaching Biden. We're yep. in for a hell of a ride. We are. And you know what? I'm just going to say to you that I don't like it any more than you do. But again, the Democrats slept on everything. And that sleeping on everything is going to put, they are going to reap what they have sown, which is nothing. And I don't know how else to make it very clear to people that they need to buckle up this is going to be ugly. I don't know that, you know, the Republican Party has clearly morphed into something else, but the Democrats have been slow on the uptake. And, you know, all of the infighting about, you know, the leftists, the this, the that, we hate Bernie Sanders, we hate AOC, we hate all these people, we hate the squad, all of that stuff, you know, those things that they were asking for are the things that people would have come out to vote for because they needed help during the, the coronavirus pandemic. They needed assistance. They needed this, that, and the other. And the kinds of things that Jen Paskey said last month where she said, oh, should we send a, a COVID-19 test to everybody? And now they're having to do it because they have egg on their face? I, I don't understand what this administration has done except laugh in our faces most of the time and then pretend to be picking up on something when the cows are out of the stall and running around loose. Well, Anthea Butler, I thank you for joining us. Uh... On Thank this you so month much. of King Day. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Anthea Butler, who's a Geraldine R. Siegel Professor of American Social Thought and Chair of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Butler's latest book is White Evangelical Racism The Politics of Morality in America. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking to the latest report from Oxfam that finds the world's 10 richest men have more than doubled their collective wealth during the pandemic when 160 million more around the world have been pushed into poverty. We are amazed but not amused by all the things you say that you do. Too much concern but not involved with decisions that are made by Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Sam Pizzagardi, who is a veteran labor journalist and a fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies and an editor at the online newsletter inequality.org. His books include The Rich Don't Always Win, The Forgotten Triumph Over Plutocracy That Created the American Middle Class, and most recently, The Case for a Maximum Wage. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sam Pizzagatti. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Sam. And Oxfam uh, have come out with a report today, and this is to coincide with Davos, the meeting of the billionaires in, in the Swiss Alps. The report says that the world's 10 richest men have more than doubled their collective fortunes since March of 2020 during the pandemic. At the same time, millions and millions around the world have been pushed into poverty. So that's about as stark as it gets, is it not, in terms of inequality? Yes, and in fact, uh, you know, it seems uh, Oxfam issues this report on the eve annually of each Davos um, World Economic Forum conference. And each year, um, I say to myself, you know, things can't get any worse in terms of the stats that um, Oxfam uh, reveals in this report, but each year it gets worse. Um, uh, The staggering um, climb of the grand fortunes of the world's richest is is, is really out of this world. And in fact, there's one stat in this Oxfam report that that really stands out to me, that if we took um, all the the, the fortunes, the private fortunes of the 10 richest billionaires on earth, and we've translated those fortunes into dollar bills and stacked them, that stack would would um, would stretch over halfway to the moon, so literally out of this world. And the head of Oxfam, in releasing this new report, said, there's been a new billionaire created almost every day during this pandemic. Meanwhile, 99% of the world's population are worse off because of lockdowns, lower international trade, less international tourism. And as a result of that, 160 million more people have been pushed into poverty. So that is, uh, again, a stark warning that there's something terribly wrong with what's happening, not just in this country, but around the world in terms of the distribution of wealth. And absolutely. And if those 10 richest billionaires that Oxfam spotlights in this latest pre-Davos report, if they were to spend a million dollars each every day, it would take them all, all 10, over four centuries to spend their combined wealth. I mean, this is, this is the, the definition of obscenity. A million a day, right? For, for four centuries. And of course, we're talking about the 10 richest men in the world. Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Bernard Arnault and family, Bill Gates, Larry Ellison, Larry Page, Sergey Brin, Mark Zuckerberg, Steve Ballmer and Warren Buffett. Yes, so uh, you can see one thing that all, almost all of those 10 billionaires have in common, except for one, they're all Americans. They're all Americans. They're all white, too. Mm-hmm. Yes, just except for one. You mean except for one is not an American, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. And their net worth grew from $700 billion to $1.5 trillion between March of 2020 and November 2021. So that's the pandemic, and they're the winners. 
and everybody else is the losers, and that's a hard thing to understand. Now, there's been some difference between the growth in these various fortunes. It seems that Elon Musk is the most fortunate. His wealth has grown by more than a thousand percent, while Bill Gates, his fortune only rose a mere thirty percent. That's right. Um, just from from inexcusable to unimaginable is uh, is is the way I describe that 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 difference. So, with 160 million more people now living in poverty, and that's calibrated on the less than $5.50 a day. That's the metric. I think actually actually it's the metric that the World Bank uses. That's pretty... You, you compare $550 a day to what, spending a, a million dollars a day for the next 400 years? I mean, God, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, and, and I, th- I think what this latest Oxfam report... Um, makes very plain is that those who say that um, we don't have enough money, we don't have enough resources um, to address climate change, change to address global poverty, um, they're really absolutely totally off base. Um, we have those resources, and those resources are sitting in the pockets of a precious few people um, around the earth, around the globe. But what these super wealthy people have in common, and they're lesser wealthy plutocrats as well, is that they don't pay their taxes. So isn't this a manifestation of selfishness, of greed? Um, uh, yes, um, absolutely. And, and the first step we need to, to take, and number one on the list of recommendations that Oxfam lays out in this report, is the uh, is a call for a uh, one-time 99% wealth tax on the gains that the world's um, richest have pocketed since the pandemic um, began. And if we if we did that, we have would have uh, enough resources. Um, not only to, to vaccine everybody on earth, but to make giant progress towards fighting capital change and uh, climate change and reducing poverty in the, in the world. And if we did that 900, that 99% wealth tax on those billionaire gains since the pandemic began, they would still have over three quarters of a trillion that would generate. I'm sorry. That would generate three quarters of over three quarters of of, of a trillion dollars in, in in new revenue, and those billionaires would still be richer than they were at the beginning of the pandemic. And again, I'm speaking with Sam Pizzagatti, who's a veteran labor journalist, a fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, and an editor at the online newsletter Inequality.org. His books include The Rich Don't Always Win, The Forgotten Triumph Over Plutocracy That Created the American Middle Class, and most recently, The Case for a Maximum Wage. So, Sam, it seems to me that when you talk about the rich don't always win, well, it seems to me that the plutocrats are winning. And in particular, it seems that when you ever get a progressive leader in this country, particularly a president, Suddenly, things just go wrong with the economy and the press start beating up on him. I'm thinking about 
Jimmy Carter, who was brought down by inflation and by the sense that he was too weak. The same thing seems to be happening to President Biden, who didn't start out as a, as a reformer. His political career is one of, of a kind of moderate consensus maker, but he clearly came out of the gate as a reformer. And look where that's getting him. And the two people that are stymieing his, his ability to govern, apart from the fact that Trump is out there telling the Republican Party, which he controls, that he's the real president and Biden's the illegitimate. I mean, that's incredibly damaging, obviously. But still, it, within his own party, these two senators, Manchin and Cinema, are also doing untold damage to him. His signature program, Build Back Better, has been torpedoed, particularly by Cinema, who went and made this speech on the Senate floor just before Biden arrived in the um, Senate to uh, have a meeting with the Democratic caucus over lunch. So that, to me, was, and to a lot of people, was so clearly disrespectful. In the same way that Cinema did that little thumbs-down curtsy as she uh, killed off the minimum wage. And you've written about the case for maximum wage. So now, I don't want to sound paranoid, but <laughs> is this the establishment's or the plutocrats' secret weapon that they can always peel off a couple of Democrats to sabotage any progressive progress? Well, that, that's 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 one of the strategies that they've um, that they've certainly used. But but I, but I think we need to expand our historical memory here. Um, what you describe is happening to Biden. Um, what you describe um, happened uh, uh, in, in a sense to Obama and Clinton and Carter. Um, all these presidents of, of the past um, uh, the fifty years, Democratic presidents. Um, uh, even the most conservative of them had some reform plans that 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 came to naught. So if you look at that history, you can say, well, you know, it's uh, the deck is totally stacked against us, and we had no hope. Um, but if we go back further, if we go back um, essentially uh, seventy years and start thinking about the, the New Deal, that then we see a different picture. Um, because in those New Deal years, um, because there was a, an upsurge of Americans like never before, um, led by the, uh, the labor movement, we were able to put into effect all sorts of, of, of changes in our politics, in our economy, um, that seriously redistributed wealth. We went from an economy um, uh, in the end of the 1920s uh, where the rich were taking um, uh, in um, 40% of the, of the nation's um, wealth um, to an economy in the middle of the 20th century where that share of, of the nation's wealth belonging to the very rich was, was cut in half. So, so we can make progress, but it takes movements, and and uh, and that's what we need to that's what we need to build. And I, I think that's the lesson that we we need to be taking from from the history of our of our past century. Well, we need a movement to end climate change. We need a movement to bring about equality and fairness in our society. But the movements underway are movements to divide us even further. I mean, had Biden made his speech that he made recently attacking Trump, uh, 
I mean, he should have made it and just after January the 6th. But of course, he wanted to bring the country together and heal the divisions. But the truth of the matter is that Trump has successfully sowed divisions to the point where 80% of the Republican Party believe he's the legitimate leader. So I don't know how you bring about some consensus in this country, given that we're being pushed in the opposite direction. We're not being brought together. We're being pulled apart. Yes, we we certainly are being um, pulled apart by all sorts of fake and distracting issues. Um, But on the optimistic side of of things, if you look at all the public opinion polls, if you look if you look at questions that ask people, what do you think about taxing the rich? Um, What do you think about the, the wealth and the power? that the rich have been able to accumulate over, over recent decades. There is a sizable public majority for taking on the rich, for raising taxes on the rich, for ending tax um, loopholes. And even, even um, Trump had to um, uh, pay attention to that sentiment um, at times and pay lip service um, uh, to it. Um, we, we need leaders, in, we need political leaders who forthrightly make the case for seriously taking on the rich. Um, Roosevelt did that in the 1930s. Um, what Roosevelt said, I welcome the anger of the rich um, um, at me. Um, and he took them on. And by the end of World War II, by, by, the, end, uh, by the end of uh, that war, um, the top tax rate in the United States was 94%. 94% of income over 200,000 faced a 94% tax rate. So when this new Oxfam report calls for a 99% wealth, percent wealth tax on the gains billionaires have made since the beginning of the pandemic, that's not too far out of line with the historical record, with what we were able to achieve in in the past. And I think that Oxfam, by putting forward that proposal for this 99% windfall wealth tax, has, has done a great public service and has taken a major step towards building the excitement um, that movements can, can grow upon. So just in the last uh, minute or so here on this Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, Sam, the Secretary of Treasury, Janet Yellen, has pointed out that African-American community in this country are disadvantaged when it comes to the distribution of wealth. What can be done to rectify that? Well, I I think that... um... I'm just looking right now at, at a quote from, from, from King that I think points the direction we need to go. He said that way back in 1956, that God never intended for one group of people to live in superfluous, inordinate wealth while others lived in, live in abject, debiting poverty. And the best way we can go at that is, is, with the, uh, is with the tax system. And if we tax the rich at the same level um, that, the, that the United States uh, federal government was willing to tax the rich in the middle of the 20th century, we could make a, we could make a major difference um, in the distribution of wealth. And a, and a better and more equal distribution of wealth um, would, 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 would certainly significantly um, help um, African Americans and all people of color in the United States. 
Well, Sam Pizzicati, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I'll be speaking with Sam Pizzicati, who's a veteran labor journalist and a fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies and the editor at the online newsletter, inequality.org. His books include The Rich Don't Always Win, The Forgotten Triumph Over Plutocracy That Created the American Middle Class, and most recently, The Case for a Maximum Wage. We can take a brief station break and back looking into the ongoing undersea volcanic explosions near the main island of Tonga. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dr. Alan Robock, who is a distinguished professor of climatology in the Department of Environmental Sciences at Rutgers University, and he is the lead author on the last Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report. And his research covers the effects of volcanic eruptions on climate and regional atmospheric hydrology modeling. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Alan Robock. Thank you very much. So, Alan, give us a, a sense of, of the magnitude of the volcanic explosion about 40 miles off the main island of Tonga. Tonga, of course, comprises about 170 smaller islands, and these eruptions are continuing. There was a substantial eruption again today, Monday. So going back to the Saturday eruption, what did that involve? Well, it was a huge explosion that put a lot of crumpled up pieces of rock called ash or tephra into the atmosphere, but also injected sulfur dioxide gas high enough up into the stratosphere to react and form a, a cloud up there, which will happen over the next couple of weeks. Uh, big eruptions can cause climate change by creating these clouds in the atmosphere above where we live, so there's no rain to wash it out. And in the stratosphere, they can last for a couple years. In 1991, the Pinatubo volcano in the Philippines put about 20 million tons of sulfur dioxide gas, and it caused global cooling of about one degree Fahrenheit, about a half a degree Celsius the next year. This eruption has already been measured with satellites, and it has much, much less sulfur dioxide than the Pinatubo eruption did. In fact, it only has about 2% of the amount, 400 thousand tons. And so I think it's going to have a very small effect on climate, nothing that we can detect. And how would this compare to the Krakatoa eruption back in the 1800s? In 1883, the Krakatoa volcano put about the same amount of of stuff in the atmosphere as Pinatubo did. And, And so this, again, is much, much smaller. Now, there was, but Krakatoa was a huge explosion and it, it was like it sent waves out, pressure waves around the world. It was like dropping a rock into a pond and you see the waves uh, going out. That did that into the atmosphere and this one did too. And we can track those waves with barometers around the world. And so you can see that the one from the one in Tonga already has gone around the world uh, uh, putting ripples in the atmosphere. But it won't have any 
potential effect on people. It's just an interesting curiosity. And and uh, G.I. Taylor actually used that Krakatoa eruption to develop more mathematical theory about how waves move. Well, in terms of the tsunami from the Tonga eruption, apparently there may be more casualties, but a British woman on Tonga uh, was drowned trying to rescue her dogs and two people drowned in Peru from unusually large waves. That's right. So it wasn't clearly as bad as the others that you mentioned. Well, Krakatoa was, of course, had some serious tsunamis. So obviously this is not the solution to global warming, right, to have more volcanoes. The solution to global warming is to leave the coal, oil, and natural gas in the ground and not burn them and put carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. The idea of emulating a volcanic eruption, though, is called geoengineering or climate intervention, and and I'm doing research on that, others are too, to see if we could do it, if humans could do it. The technology doesn't exist today, but if we thought about doing it, what would be the potential benefits and what would be the potential risks? And it looks like there are quite a few risks of doing it. So people are now studying it, trying to see if they can invent the technology that would be necessary to put the sulfur up there and doing computer modeling to see uh, what would be the potential impacts, benefits, and risks. And again, I'm speaking with Dr. Alan Robach, a distinguished professor of climatology in the Department of Environmental Sciences at Rutgers University, and he is the lead author on the last Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report and does research on the effects of volcanic eruptions on climate and regional atmospheric hydrology modeling. So is this the sort of the same kind of scenario as the nuclear winter that we're talking about? Well, I also do research on nuclear winter, and that would be caused by smoke from fires that would be started in targets in cities and industrial areas that would go up into the atmosphere and block out the sun and make it cold. The black soot from the fires, uh, if there was a global nuclear war, say, between the U.S. and Russia, would be much, much, much worse than any volcanic eruption. Temperatures would plunge below freezing in the summertime in in the middle of continents, and it would have a terrible effect on agriculture. Uh, These are all different ways that particles could go into the stratosphere in the upper atmosphere. Smoke would stay much, much longer because it would be black particles. They would be heated by the sun and lofted high up in the stratosphere and last for five or five years or more, not just for one year like volcanic sulfate. So uh, volcanic eruptions can't be prevented and and we can't even predict them very well. But humans putting particles in the stratosphere either on purpose by geoengineering or as a result of war by nuclear nuclear war are things we can prevent and things we, we need to study to see what the impacts would be. Obviously, nuclear war would be a horrible thing for many, many reasons, but it could sentence most of the world to famine because of the climate effects. Uh, global warming can be solved by quickly reducing our use of fossil fuels, and we know that. We don't even really want to be working on geoengineering, but if people are tempted, we want to be able to inform them about what the potential impacts would be, both the benefits and risks. So what is then the wake-up call needed? Because I think every day there's a wake-up call, isn't there, Alan? I mean, floods and fires and massive fires, and this is what... We've just recorded the hottest decade in history? Yes. uh, 
So we've known this for quite a while and people are beginning to feel it now, but fossil fuel companies can make a lot of money selling you gasoline and and natural gas and, and, and coal. And so to retrofit the world's energy supply requires uh, a government action, not just individual action, to put a price on, on this pollution. I mean, if you flush your toilet or throw something in your rubbish bin, you've got to pay somebody to deal with the waste. But if you drive your car and produce carbon dioxide, there's no fee on polluting the atmosphere. We're using the atmosphere as a sewer. So if we put a fee on it, people call it a carbon tax or a or a fee, and that gradually goes up, and the money would then be, what would it you do with it? Maybe it could be returned to all the people. The government wouldn't keep it. If there was a fee, if there was a, a, a consequence of burning fossil fuels, over time, people would have an incentive both to not emit carbon dioxide and to develop the technology people will will need, like electric cars and a better electric grid and better ways to store electricity. So, uh, but there's uh, these fossil fuel companies have a huge influence on the legislature, certainly in the United States, and and in particular one of the of our political parties is really beholden to them. So that's where we're that's where we are. Well, the other political party, though, as the chairman of the Senate Energy and Commerce Committee, is none other than Senator Joe Manchin, right? who is in the coal business. Right. So if you're in the fossil fuel business, you couldn't have a better guy in charge of policy, right, than Joe Manchin. Well, when people ask me what to do about global warming, I say it's more important to change your leaders than it is to change your light bulbs. And so... Uh, if there were more, if people really cared about it, they would vote based on this topic and and put more people into into power in, in the Congress that would uh, do the right thing with for global warming. So in terms of what just happened in Tonga and continues to happen, as I say, there's still been more eruptions. The cloud is heading westward, right, towards Australia? Yes. And what effects it's going to have on Australia? Because Australia has some of the worst climate change effects of all countries, doesn't it? They have massive fires that wiped out billions of animals, you know, koala bears and kangaroos, etc. And, 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 and the smoke fires went up into the stratosphere and then got heated by the sun and lofted another 20 kilometers. So that's a good uh, example that proves our nuclear winter theory. We've been able to model that with the same climate models. But going back to volcanoes, we've learned from past ones that the cloud will go around the world in maybe three weeks and then spread out and it won't stay over Australia. And as I said, it's not a very thick cloud. So I don't think you might see skies a little bit whiter for a couple of days, but I don't think it will have a lasting effect on Australia. But in terms of people on Tonga, aren't they breathing really toxic air? I mean, there have been warnings now or directives not to drink water because the water's contaminated. You have to drink bottled water, wearing masks. Apparently, the dust is, is all over the place, and it's in the air. So what kind of effect is that going to have on the health of the people in Tonga? Well, uh, I don't know much about... That's not my area of expertise, so what you said makes a lot of sense. But the dust will settle down. It will only last in the atmosphere for a short amount of time. After the Mount St. Helens eruption in 1980 in western United States put a lot of dust into the lower atmosphere but after a couple of days it was gone it was blown away so I'm sure in the short term it would be 
terrible to be uh, have have that dust uh, settle on you and on your maybe even on your farm and in in your water. But I think it, it'll be a short lived effect. So at this point, the island seems to be pretty much cut off, or the main island, because the the undersea cable was severed. You know, these Pacific Islanders have been at the forefront of warning about global warming, have they not? These small island nations, some of them are going under. Yeah, sea level rise is one of the consequences of global warming, and it's not just the average sea level rise. It's what goes It's on high tides like we're having right now because there's a full moon, and then winds on top of that can cause terrible flooding. And so I'm sure that I know there was a tsunami there from the explosion itself, uh, so yes, these islands uh, are really living in, if you're near a big volcano and sea levels rising, it's not very uh, uh, safe. On the other hand, you're in the tropical paradise. So <laughs> these are things that we have to worry about and be concerned about. And the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, has reports every few years. And the, a recent one was on keeping global warming at one and a half degrees Celsius above pre-industrial, and this was pushed by these small islands who say two degrees above pre-industrial is already too warm, we're already suffering, and we and they got the attention and got one and a half degrees as being a, a short-term goal. It's gonna be very hard to meet that, although, but we can if we really change the way we, we do things. It would require uh, a rapid change in the government of the world and in, and in actions, and so the question is, is are politicians giving lip service to it and going on uh, business as usual, or is there going to be a change? And uh, I'm really happy that young people are really sticking out and talking about it. You know, I teach a course every year on climate change to undergraduate meteorology majors. And a few years ago, they were sort of skeptical about it, but now they're just scared. They realize it's, it's their future. And so I hope that they are vote and go out and try and, and produce a world that will be good for them and their children. So in terms of teaching media, future meteorologists, Alan, what about these, not necessarily meteorologists, but the people on TV that do the weather? They're usually attractive women wearing sort of tight sweaters, etc. But nevertheless, I think some are meteorologists as well. Is there a way to get more public education via television weather instead of it sort of trivializing it and making it all very dramatic. Because every time, you know, you get a little bit of rain here in Southern California, you'd think that, you know, the sky was falling. So, and quite often <laughs> the rain never shows up. So is that a possible fix here to wake people up? Instead of just talking about the weather, let's talk about the climate. Well, the way you characterize television meteorologists is a little a bit old-fashioned, I think. The American Meteorological Society has a program to certify meteor TV meteorologists, and when they come on, you see in the lower left corner of the screen a little box that says AMS, American Meteorological Society, and that means that they are truly a scientist, often with a bachelor's degree in meteorology, and have had other members of the society look at them and make sure that they are uh, legitimate scientists. And typically, that's the only scientist people see. So they're the station scientists. And whenever science comes up, they talk about it. It used to be that they were kind of afraid about mentioning climate change. But now they mention it all the time. And so uh, 
you actually do get quite a bit of information from television meteorologists. And if a station has a choice of getting somebody with an AMS seal and somebody without, they'll they'll choose that. And sometimes they're, you know, to be on TV, no matter what you do, the people want to be attractive. Uh, one of my students from Rutgers, Dylan Dreyer, is very attractive and was one of the best students I ever had. And I told her, you know, you should go to graduate school. You can go for free. You can do science. She said, I want to do TV. And she worked her way up from small stations, and now she's a station scientist for NBC News and on the Today Show. And she's a very smart scientist and also uh, conveys the science to people. So that's, I think we really do get a lot of information from TV meteorologists. Well, I stand corrected, and, and I have to tell you, Alan, I have no objection to attractive women. Oh, I don't either, but that's <laughs> that's not the point. The point is you, you need to get people's attention to have them listen. So... It used to be that uh, Bob Ryan was a TV meteorologist in in Washington D.C. and in Boston before. He's very attractive too, and he leads a commission trying to get more information about science, about climate on TV. And they have training sessions every year at conferences where they bring climate scientists to educate the t- TV meteorologists so that they'll be giving the public information that's correct. And there are things like Climate Central, which provide information for them. So I think the word is getting out that way and and in the on television. I think people are becoming much more aware of it. And they now have to uh, get policies on the books so that, I mean, people are complaining about the price of gasoline being 3 or $4 a gallon now. It's even $5 a gallon out on the left coast where you live. And that's much too cheap. It should be 10 or 15 or $20 a gallon to pay for the actual damage that burning those fossil fuels is doing. And the way to get there is to gradually increase the price with a fee that then is used to help build a, a better infrastructure that doesn't rely on burning fossil fuels. But people, you know, are short-sighted. People want the price of gas lower because that affects their pocketbook. And if you don't have enough money to feed your kids or don't have a good job, people are, that's people look at the short term, not the long term. And that's where that's why we're sort of stuck in trying to do something where if you pay more for gasoline, you don't see any climate change for a while. It'll, it won't be for decades, but you have to trust the science that it won't get any worse if you if you act in a responsible way. So that's why it's a hard problem to solve. So just in closing, uh, then, Dr. Alan Robock, during the Cold War, nuclear saber rattling between the United States and the Soviet Union President Reagan once remarked that if the Martians sort of invaded, suddenly we'd forget about our differences and all work together. Uh, We're all in lifeboat Earth together. The seas are rising all around the world. Bangladesh will go under and so will Florida. So going back to my earlier question, what is it going to take? Because the evidence is so manifest now already that these extreme weather events are clearly related to climate change and global warming. And yet that doesn't seem to be a sufficient wake-up call. I think people vote a lot with their pocketbooks. So right now, uh, most people can't afford a Tesla. They can afford a much cheaper uh, internal combustion engine, a gas-powered uh, automobile. As the But the price of solar panels is plummeting. The p- price of windmills is going down. And so over time, people will be able to behave responsibly, and it won't cost them extra money, but we're not quite there yet. The government can stop subsidizing fossil fuels, which we continue to do, and subsidize actions. Uh, the the uh, infrastructure bill, which was passed in the U.S., does that 
partially the Build Back Better bill, which they're having trouble getting passed, will do some of that too. But uh, people are standing in the way of it. People like Joe Manchin. So, uh, what what do you what the people of West Virginia? Uh, he's he's acting for the owners of the coal mines, not the coal miners themselves. The the labor union wants him to do something about about climate change. So, uh, you tell me how to solve that problem. I I don't know. I, I can tell you. <laughs> About the climate, uh, human behavior is much more complicated. No, and in fact, every day I'm trying to find out what's going on, and quite often it's depressing. So, you know, I'm looking for the answers, and we certainly don't have any answers in terms of the deficit we have in our politics in terms of dealing with reality. It's just appalling. What is on the political agenda is stupid stuff like culture wars and, and distractions and infighting and polarization and there's no real sense of unifying us all against a common threat so well uh, the, the, there's a huge amount of money being wasted on the military budget of our country i think we spend more than the next 10 nations put together uh, and more money goes out than even the military wants so we have plenty of resources. And who's our enemy? Our enemy is climate change. We don't have any military enemies that we need that all those weapons for. And so there are resources that can be redirected, but it needs a, a political will to do it. The nuclear posture review is on is being going on now in the U.S. government, and I'm hoping Joe Biden will step up and say we don't need so many nuclear weapons. But I'm afraid he'll go along with the, what's been going on in the past. So uh, I, I wish there uh there was a, a leader that would step up and say, you know, let's redirect these resources, not just continue to put them all all uh, in a place where it makes the world more dangerous, not not better for people. Well, Dr. Alan Robach, I thank you so much for joining us here today. You're welcome. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Alan Robach, who's a distinguished professor of climatology in the Department of Environmental Sciences at Rutgers University. And he is the lead author on the last Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report. And his research covers the effects of volcanic eruptions on climate and regional atmospheric hydrology modelling. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by hand